Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called A Future Free from Femicide with Marlene Hamm. Marlene is the executive director of the Ontario Association of Interval and Transition Houses, also known as OAITH. In this episode, we talk with Marlene about the discourse around femicide, we talk about femicide rates here in Ontario, and we talk about how we can prevent these deaths from happening in the future. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence and stalking become lethal. It was really nice to get connected with Marlene for this episode. Our organization, Women's Crisis Services, is actually one of the member organizations of OAITH. So we really rely on OAITH. Uh, They advocate for us in the government. They share lots of helpful resources. And it's really great to be a part of the association. Now, in the episode, there were so many things Marlene said that stuck out to me that I really enjoyed her speaking about. You know, she highlighted the groups that are disproportionately impacted by femicide. And we also talked about how femicide is talked about sometimes in the media. You know, sometimes there will be a media release that goes out after we see that a woman is killed. And sometimes we'll see messaging, often from police, that says there's no concern for public safety at this time. And we talked about this a bit further and we explored what does this really mean? I think oftentimes when we see this, we think, okay, there's no immediate concern for other people around who may be in the area at the time. Um, But if there's no suicide following the femicide, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, there's no risk to other women in the future who may get into a relationship with this person. So that was really interesting part of the conversation for me, talking about what is meant by this and, and really pulling it apart. Um, I think you're going to really like the episode too. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hi, Marlene. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're really looking forward to learning from you today in this episode. I'm wondering if you could just start by sharing a little bit about yourself. Okay, yeah. My name's uh, Marlene, and I work here at the Ontario Association of Interval and Transition Houses. And I've been here for the past eight years. And uh, prior to working at OAITH, I worked in a range of different violence against women shelters. And so I've been doing this work now for just over 20 years. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me. 
Oh, wow. Over 20 years. So I'm sure you've seen a lot transpire in that time. You started off by saying you're with OAith. I'm wondering if for those who don't know, you can share a bit more about what OAith is and how you support uh, VAW organizations or violence against women organizations throughout Ontario. Yeah. So uh, the Ontario Association of Interval and Transition Houses was established in 1977 as a network that brought together uh, violence against women's shelters and, and supported their development. And as time went on, we had more shelters who started to become created in various communities across Ontario. And now we have about 95 violence against women's shelters in Ontario that are funded through the Ministry of Community and Children's Social Services. Uh, but we also have a number of Indigenous shelters as well that are also here in Ontario. So for OAIF, we have approximately 80 members, uh, and those are made up of violence against women's shelters, transitional housing, and we also have some organizations that we call ally organizations of OAIF, and those could be organizations that don't operate shelter, but they operate some form of gender-based violence programming. And so, so that's what makes up our membership, and in terms of how we support uh, all of our members. Our work is really focused on government relations and advocacy. We provide training, education, we engage in different research projects, and of course we do some public awareness work about gender-based violence across the province uh, through various different campaigns. Great. Thank you so much for elaborating. I know there is so much that OAIF does, and uh, we're really grateful to be to be a part of it and be able to learn from you and to other shelters and other organizations throughout Ontario. So it's, it's really awesome. I'm also curious to hear a bit more about the work that you do in terms of femicide. I know you do a lot of tracking of femicide, you count femicide, and you raise awareness about it. Can you talk about the work that you do in regards to femicide? Yeah, so OAIF began tracking femicide in 1995 and formally and putting reports of femicide out on an annual basis. So they started with publicizing an annual list uh, that they would send out to shelters. And where they got those reports of femicide was actually through the media. So at the time, they would use various media reports to be able to track violence against women, and in particular, femicide. And so uh, they did that for a number of years where it would go out as an annual report. But as technology evolved and we entered kind of into the era of digitization, that really, you know, allowed us to do our work around femicide uh, in a very different way. And so we've moved a lot of what we do more into a digital space and a digital format uh, certainly utilizing social media. And so, and over time, you know, one of the pieces that we started to look at was the different types of femicides. So we had initially started looking at intimate partner femicides that were occurring. And then about 2014, 2015, we started to change a little bit in terms of who we included on that list, what victims we included. Uh, because we, you know, as we were doing this work, we started to see something different uh, emerge uh, because we had more access to different types of media. So we started to see when we looked at the relationship of the victims and, and the perpetrator, 
we were starting to see other types of relationships between the perpetrator and the victim. And so now, you know, kind of fast forward, we we look at four different types of relationships as it relates to femicide. So we look at current or former male intimate partners, male family members who might be the perpetrator. We would also look at where there's been a known relationship or it's been reported uh, by um, in the media that, that it was a known relationship. And sometimes the media might not have the information on the type of relationship or the police may not report that type of relationship. But there might be a gendered element that was a part of the crime. So that could be, you know, she may have been murdered in her home. There may have been sexual violence involved. And so those are some key pieces that we really look for as we sort of kind of understand there are different types of femicides through the different types of relationships between the victim and the perpetrator. So now our femicide list certainly is much more broad in terms of who we capture and, and who we would really like to ensure gets acknowledged when we put out the annual femicide list. But the other big change that we made is a couple of years ago, we worked towards looking at, you know, femicide reports on a monthly basis. So now we put out a monthly femicide report and we release that at the beginning of every month. And so we do both. And that was really you know, that really kind of came from a, a need that's been identified to us of people wanting that data on a more regular basis. So we do both monthly reports, we do an annual report, and we also do a media analysis. And so what we do with the media analysis is we have about four or five different frames that we take every media article and we analyze it. We analyze every media article against those frames. And so what that has been able to tell us is, you know, how is the issue of femicide being framed throughout media articles? What are the positive frames that are being used, but also what the negative frames have been uh, throughout that media analysis? And it gives us a tool to be able to educate our media partners. They are doing these stories on femicides that are occurring in their community. Thank you for elaborating on that. So interesting to hear. That's something we talk about a lot too, is how domestic violence and femicide is is covered in the media. And there are some journalists who do such a wonderful job highlighting it. And then there's also sometimes ways that it's talked about in the media that's surprising to me. You know, something we talk about with this podcast as well is that domestic violence kind of used to be under this kind of cloak of shame and silence. And I think it still really is to some extent. And imagery in the media a lot of the time would be, you know, women crying in the shadows and, and almost seeming like women are weak and maybe they're the ones to blame in some way. And that's kind of not how we see it. We want to flip the message a bit. So I'm interested to um, hear about how you kind of see these media reports of femicide and how you think the language should maybe change. Do you have any further thoughts on that that you'd like to elaborate on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the common things that we might see in a in a media headline is the responsibility can easily be taken away from the person who's perpetrated the crime. And so, you know, an example could be woman was killed with a knife, right? Woman was stabbed, you know, or we see different interpretations of that that come out through media headlines. But we need to really think of that a little bit differently because there was a person who used that weapon. And 
you know, it wasn't just the weapon, but there was someone who was operating that weapon. So when we have a headline that doesn't actually situate that, it really starts to make invisible what femicide actually is. And, you know, for OAIS work, femicide is really bringing attention to men's violence. So it isn't just about how someone may have lost their life, but it's about who took their life. And, you know, when we have media articles that miss that piece, the issue essentially becomes invisible. It loses its context. You know, we also sort of see this in sometimes how a police press release will come out. And, you know, it might indicate there's no threat to public safety. You know, that's that's some pretty common language that, that we will see. But again, you know, we're making invisible the actual issue. And so why? Why is it that there's no threat to public safety? What do we actually mean by that? And really breaking that down because we see we analyze and we review hundreds of articles every year. You know, some of those media articles, there might only be one attached to one woman. Some women might get many. But when we look across all those media articles, there there is some common language that gets used. But the piece that gets missed is the actual context. So the context could be a, a prior history uh, that existed of violence against women. So when we don't talk about that previous history that's occurred, it may appear as though this was a crime that just happened. But often what we know is that there is a long history that comes before a femicide occurring, particularly when we're talking about intimate partner femicide. But we've also seen it in other types of femicides, uh, family femicides or known, where, where there's a family relationship. You know, it could be a son or a nephew, or it could be a known relationship, where it could be a, a roommate. Uh, or a neighbor, they too have had prior histories of violence and prior histories of violence against women. So when we don't talk about the context or we don't have media articles that are really situating what that context is, then we don't then view this issue really as an issue of violence against women. We, you know, we view it kind of simply as something that it's really horrible that happened. It's a really horrible tragedy. But there's there's a story that surrounds that. And often there's a history that has led up to that. Thanks for explaining that. I think it's so important uh, to recognize that and that these are not one-off incidents a lot of the time. Um, and that's what the work you're doing shows, right? These numbers are showing that it happens to so many people and violence does escalate over time, right? It's not something that just happens. There could be a prior history of it. It builds. Um, so when we're talking about there's no danger to public safety, you know, what about the next woman who might enter into a relationship with this person if this person is still out and about? Um, so I think that's a really important point to make. So thanks for elaborating on that. And something else I want to ask you about is, I know this is just a, a difficult subject, femicide, I and mean, you've been working on it for a while now in this field. I'm wondering how femicide has impacted your life. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the question. I mean, I think for me, you know, when I started out in this work, it was very much, very much situated in a frame of domestic violence. And you know, as, you know, as time went on and I, I ended up here at Oath, one piece of work I hadn't really done 
was working on and being a part of creating an annual femicide list. And so one of the things that really struck me at that time was that this was something that really expanded my original framing of violence against women being connected specifically to intimate partner violence, uh, because I started to see all of the different relationships between perpetrators and victims, and that violence against women certainly goes far beyond intimate partner violence. And we're seeing that in our femicide data. We're seeing that in the different types of relationships. We're seeing that in the different types of histories that that have occurred prior to a femicide happening. So it's really expanded my understanding. But the other piece that also really struck me, and we've been able to see this more in the past few years because media reporting has actually improved, is the overrepresentation particularly for Indigenous women, for Black women, and for South Asian women that continue to show up on our femicide list. And so that in and of itself caused me to think about, okay, number one, why? Why is this the case where certain communities of women are overrepresented? That leads me to then kind of think, how were our systems designed to deal with these issues? Who designed them? And, and what were the priorities at the time? Because a lot of our systems and services that we have in place today, they were designed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. A lot of the legislation that we have has been in place uh, for a long time. So I think to myself, okay, we have this overrepresentation for Indigenous, Black, and other racialized communities. And what's happening within our systems and services what more needs to be changed? What more needs to be done for us to affect some change? So, so that's, in a way, that's kind of how it impacts certainly my life and my work. You know, I, I think the femicide data tells a really important story of what's actually happening within our systems and services. It's painting a picture for us that's requiring our attention to really look at are the systems and services that have been developed uh, over time what we need today? How does some of that need to change? What are the gaps? And and so so for me that that's kind of you know how this work on femicide that we do and and what comes out of that you know those those definitely some of the impacts of of it's impacted my thinking and my understanding. It's impacted my analysis of the issue that I didn't have when I started this work, because when I started this work, it was very laser focused on domestic violence. But when you do femicide work and you analyze all of those media articles, you start to understand that this is a much broader issue that is really intersecting with a range of different communities, services, systems. And so we need to, you know, we need to make room for all of that. Uh, if we're if we're going to actually affect any change and reduce the number of femicides that are occurring in Ontario. I think that's a really good point. And I think you said something interesting there that the the data tells us a really important story. So, you know, all you have to do is is look at this data that you collect to kind of see who is impacted and the frequency. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that, about the statistics in Ontario and how this compares to the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, it's it, 
I, I guess, you know, here in Ontario, kind of current context, certainly in the past couple of years, we've had a lot of femicides occur. And because we track different types of femicides, you really have to look at each of those types side by side to kind of understand what that kind of looks like. Because here in Ontario, we do track different types. So that's one piece we have to kind of understand for sure. In total, last year, we had 58 femicides, but we only began tracking different types of femicides since about 2014, 2015. So it can be difficult sometimes to really take a longer look historically because we haven't been tracking femicides in the same way since 1995. So that's... uh, that's kind of one piece. And, and every year there are femicide victims where we have to wait for information. So information isn't always reported initially uh, when a femicide occurs. So we really do rely on voices of authority, for instance, police, to be able to report some of those details that would lead us to be able to say, okay, this was a femicide. So when those details don't get released, it makes understanding the depth of the problem uh, that much more difficult. And it might take uh, six months for more details to come. A year could take a couple of years. Uh, We've seen that as well. So that is, uh, you know, in terms of how, you know, what that problem looks like here in Ontario compared to the rest of the country, it can be difficult for us to compare that. But certainly, you know, we have seen an increase when we just look at Ontario's femicide data prior to the pandemic. We look into the past couple of years, we we certainly have uh, seen more femicides, but we've seen more femicides occur from family members who've been the perpetrator, a male family member. We're seeing more femicides show up in our unknown category of how we code femicides. And that's really because more and more information is not being released And so when information isn't released about the type of relationship, when police don't release that, then essentially what it has done over the past couple of years is we've seen more uh, femicides uh, really be coded as unknown relationships. But those could very well be uh, intimate partner femicides. They could be femicides that have been perpetrated by a male family member. But until more information is released about those, we don't really know. So it it makes sort of having more concrete data about the actual numbers a little bit more challenging. So, I mean, there's that there's that piece to it, right, that, you know, it kind of causes us to always say that the data in the femicide list is is only partial because, you know, we don't ever we don't always have uh, complete information about these femicides. Um, and then what we're seeing is, you know, we have to we have to kind of look at the systemic issues at play. And, and we would certainly say that there are a number of systemic issues that are not only leading to femicide, but, but leading to gender-based violence uh, more broadly. And the longer those systemic issues go unaddressed, the more femicides we're going to see the more experiences of gender-based violence we're going to see, but importantly, the more severity we're going to see. And the the more severity we see, the more risk we see for for femicides occurring. And and we've certainly seen that happen 
throughout the pandemic. And we would certainly attribute the increase in gender-based violence and the increase in femicides to a range of systemic issues that are occurring that are that are leading to this. Thank you for explaining that. And um, as we know, violence is escalating, femicide is increasing. Uh, something else I th- wondered if you could briefly touch on is the Renfrew inquest. I know you were involved in this a bit, and I wondered if you could just share a little bit about that. Yeah, so so I was invited to present as a witness to speak more broadly about the issue of gender-based violence uh, in Ontario to the jury at the inquest. So what we sort of talked about and presented there was really around, you know, some basic statistics of the issue of intimate partner violence in Ontario and across Canada. Uh, We presented on a waste femicide data. We looked at a a five-year period. Uh, We provided a a five-year analysis of the femicides that had occurred since Carol Culleton, Anastasia Kuzak, and Natalie Warmerdam uh, had been killed. And, and I think that was really impactful because, you know, this was one inquest, but from the time that, that they were murdered up until the time that that inquest happened, there were 100, 100 more intimate partner femicides that had occurred. And, and we've had very few inquests comparatively to the number of intimate partner femicides that have happened in this province. So, you know, I think that it really does show the depth and scope of the problem of intimate partner violence and the risk really associated with intimate partner violence leading to intimate partner femicide when, you know, when these issues are uh, not addressed and when, you know, when systems fail, essentially systems fail and we need to be able to get to the root of that right um and and because those are all areas that i think you know everyone is very committed to addressing but an inquest it can it can give us an opportunity to really identify key recommendations uh that are that are needed to be able to prevent um further femicides. But the the challenge, of course, with that is just because there's been an inquest doesn't mean that the recommendations are going to be implemented. And so everyone's work right now um, really needs to be focused on, you know, how do we work together to ensure that these recommendations are implemented? And, And many of these recommendations have been recommendations that have been made before in prior inquests. And so, you know, what is needed to really ensure that these 86 recommendations can be our compass? We also have a national action plan that's just been announced. And how does that pair and tie into the 86 recommendations that have been made, but also prior recommendations that have been made that have never been implemented? So it's an important opportunity, of course, when we've had an inquest, when we have such great recommendations that have come out of that and collectively, whether we're community members, service providers, those working uh, in various government ministries, politicians, it really is going to, you know, take a very collaborative effort to get behind the implementation of those recommendations. 
And so in talking about recommendations, I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts on what we can all do as neighbors, friends, family members. What can people do in their everyday lives to support women, children, gender diverse individuals who are experiencing domestic violence so that these tragedies hopefully don't occur? Yeah, I think that the most important piece is those kind of closest to us in our lives are often the ones who know something might be going on, right? And I think generally people kind of understand, you know, the issue of domestic violence, you know, what domestic violence is. But kind of the next step to that is understanding what you can do about it. So there's two parts to that, you know, it's knowing, you know, what is the issue? We educate about the issue. There's lots of education about that. But what can we do and how can we respond and how can we support? How do we have those conversations? How do we, how do we identify, uh, you know, with a family member or a, a friend or a neighbor, what we're concerned about, you know, how we're worried about them, how we can support them. You know, it's important around ensuring we know how to provide validation uh, and support to believe them to take them seriously if someone expresses concern about their safety, knowing to ask that question. If a neighbor or friend knows what's going on, you know, asking, are you afraid? You know, and if they are afraid, that's something we all need to engage a little bit more in that discussion. Certainly knowing what the supports and services are in our communities helps. And there are many different supports um, available. And so, so knowing what those are, I think, is, is definitely helpful. And, and asking, you know, asking the person in your life who might be going through this, how can I support you? You know, so that's, that's certainly part of the conversation. But I think the other side of this, Jenna, is those who are perpetrating violence, who might be the primary aggressors. There's conversations that need to happen there, right? And there's lots of opportunity and discussion to be able to engage those who are primary aggressors or causing the harm. Because if we don't do that, if we don't find ways to engage in discussions with those who cause harm, we're not going to solve this problem because they're just going to continue causing harm. And so we can do both. It's not an either or. We have to find that space in the middle where we do both. Because if if we don't, we're going to continue to see gender-based violence occur. We're going to continue to see femicides. Um, so we have to we have to look at the whole picture and find our inroads where we can find them. Because otherwise, it's going to be very, very challenging for us to see some change occur. And this was one of the really important pieces that came out of this inquest and actually is what really defined it from other inquests was around reaching those who cause harm and primary aggressors sooner, getting them the supports that they need sooner so that the violence doesn't increase in severity and ultimately lead to femicide. You know, the way our systems are designed currently is the response system. We have a response system, but so few people actually experience that intervention. So uh, in terms of primary aggressors and those who perpetrate, 
the intervention is after something really severe has happened. So, you know, we need to find ways. And the inquest recommendations really provide a compass to reaching perpetrators much sooner and actually preventing them from becoming perpetrators at all. And that is really what is going to stop domestic violence, stop gender-based violence. And that really needs to be the goal and the path and the path forward. Thank you so much for being here today, Marlene. It was so great to learn from you. And I know everyone listening will have gotten some great tips and learned so much. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter, and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.